0: Hey folks, Pattern is a disability insurance company and they know that you wanna be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm very excited to have on the show today Dr. Laban Lester, who is truly a fantastic physician here at Johns Hopkins. He happens to be uh, an ER doc and an anesthesiologist and a cardiac anesthesiologist. He completed residencies in both emergency medicine and anesthesia and then a fellowship in cardiac anesthesia. He's one of our really fantastic teachers here, highly valued in the classroom and the operating room. And uh, I've had him on the show today. Uh, Laban, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Lester has an approach to topicalization of the airway that uh, we're going to call the Nearly Needless Five-Step Approach to Topicalization. And it's really fantastic. I think it's easy to remember and really a, a good thing to keep in your mind as you're going forward with awake intubations. Now, if you're a usual listener of ACRAC, you know that back in episode 17, I did an entire episode on awake intubation, and I went through a variety of steps and possibilities for topicalization, nerve blocks, sedation, and different approaches. So you can go back and check that out. But today we're going to focus very specifically on Laban's approach to topicalization, which I really like and I think is a good complement to that episode I did back in episode 17. We're not going to talk about sedation here. You can get that by going back to that episode. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope your 2017 has started off well. And without further ado, Laban, tell me about your nearly needless five-step approach to topicalization.
2: So I like to keep this pretty simple in ways that I can remember it, especially when I'm under the gun. So the five steps to the nearly needless approach are, number one, an anti number two, aerosolized lidocaine, number three, lidocaine ointment, number four, is lidocaine soaked pledgets to the piriform fossa,
0: and number five is optional. That's the transtracheal block. Awesome. All right. So there you go. Five steps. Now, maybe we can go through one by one and give some details for people if they want to try this out. How are they going to do each of these steps specifically?
2: So, one thing to remember with an antiseologog is they actually take some time to dry out the mucous membrane, so they they work by inhibiting the, the the production of secretions, not by actually magically drying up secretions that are already there so thinking ahead, and the reason this is step one is it 's something you want to start. About 15 minutes, really, between before you're starting to uh, actually manage the airway. So this process begins beforehand. So what are the agents that you're going to use? Generally, it's going to be glycopyrrolate, usually about 0.2 um, milligrams. And the risk, obviously, with, a, with an anticholinergic is tachycardia. So you have to think about which patient you're going to use. Atropine has been used. Scopalamine has been used. Hyoscine has been used. The other, I tend to use either glycopyrrolate or I will sometimes just use simple diphenhydramine, Benadryl, in 12.5 to 25 milligram dose. But remember, it can be quite sedating, particularly in the elderly, frail patients, and it can be associated with uh, delirium. So when I do it, I tend to use smaller doses and then titrate if needed.
0: Great. All right. So um, if you're going to use Benadryl, you said 12.5 or 25, are you giving that PO or IV?
2: That I would generally give IV. Okay. And and so for glycopyrrolate, I'd give it generally IV for 15 minutes. If you give it intramuscularly, you may need more like 30 to 40 minutes of time before you see the drying effect
0: now do you uh only give glycopyrrolate to patients who are already on the monitor in pre-op because of the potential for the tachycardia or will you give it to someone who's not on a monitor
2: for most patients i would give 0.2 of glycopyrrolate even if they're not on a monitor There are some patients that we have, particularly in the cardiac uh, arena, or patients who are in the ICU in whom even a a small increase in the heart rate might cause bigger uh, problems. So I would be more careful in those patients.
0: Okay. Now, you give your 0.2 of glycopyrrolate. That's, as you said, probably the most common approach. And are you testing? Are you checking to see if it worked? Or you just assume that 0.2 is going to be an effective dose for pretty much everybody?
2: Well, there are people I might consider doing more in, especially people in whom an increased heart rate has no, absolutely no effect. Um, so, Or a very large patient, I might give 0.3 or even 0.4. That said, I would consider redosing. But remember, there's this time component. So waiting 15 minutes is already um, uh, sometimes difficult for us right. to wait that time. So then if you're you won't know if you're going to need it for that amount of time. You may see some effect in 7 minutes or so, okay. uh, according to the literature, but for the full effect it's generally 15 minutes. Now,
0: what what's the on the other end of things, let's say the case gets delayed, what's too long? When would you have to redose it?
2: The, so it's variable in terms of the studies for it, but it, but it, if you're they generally don't last more than an hour or so. Okay. And if you you and you may have to kind of recheck the patient's mouth see if they still have a dry mouth if it's 45 minutes.
0: Great. All right. So anti that's step one. What's step two?
2: So step two is an aerosolized lidocaine, and and this can be very, very useful. And here we use this easy spray device that is essentially a disposable version of the old Devilbus atomizer that you see from old time movies when somebody uses uh, cl- uh, chloroform to knock a, out a victim. <laughs> so it, but it works very nicely. It does require some uh, assistance from the patient, and generally, I use 10 to 12 cc's of about 3% lidocaine, and 4, 10 cc's of 4% is, is fine. You're not the patient is taking really just and is taking it in when they're inhaling, so you're not giving that entire dose because we do think a little bit about uh, our overall lidocaine dose. Although, as I said, the patient doesn't get all of that; some of it is swallowed into the stomach. So not all of it is necessarily absorbed. That spray in general, so with our easy spray type technique that we use here at Hopkins, I hook that up to an oxygen source, and I run it somewhere between four and eight Plus or minus, I'll test each device and see how vigorous the spray is with it. If you have higher flows, you're going to have smaller droplets. You'll tend to fall out of the airway more uh, distally, Mm -hmm. so into the alveoli. If you're running with somewhat lower flows, you may have larger droplets. That's going to tend to fall out sooner in the oropharynx and, hopefully as well, the trachea. This technique works very nicely and can sometimes... uh, um, and does the majority of the topicalization for us.
0: Yeah, this is great, and I think you make a really key point. Uh, When I see people making a mistake here, they often have turned the oxygen flow up to 15 liters per minute, and then it doesn't work as well, and they don't know why, and it's because, as you said, those droplets are going all the way down into the airways, and they're not uh, numbing up the oropharynx and the cords, which is where you want them to go. All right, so uh, step two, you've now had the patient. And how long do you have them breathe this for?
2: It usually takes about five minutes to do it, but I often will have them breathe just with inhalation. Some patients who are less cooperative, I'll actually have them hold it in their mouth and have it go continuously, and some of it they're exhaling out and some inhaling. The other thing that's very useful with this technique, and it gets to some of the things maybe we'll address a little later, is you can actually get good oropharyngeal and tracheal coverage when you breathe it nasally as well, if the patient has an unobstructed uh, nares. So that can provide both nasal and oropharyngeal uh, topicalization.
0: Now, if you don't uh, – some people out there may not have access to this device. They may be using kind of a typical nebulizer that you would put uh, albuterol in or anything else you were nebulizing. When you're doing that, any, any changes to the technique that you would recommend?
2: I think actually you can use a very similar um, – Technique and in the same regard with the nebulizer as well, higher flows are associated with smaller droplets. So you can I wouldn't go to the highest flow and you'll. Right. Accomplish so still four to want. eight,
0: four to eight liters per minute. Okay. Um, one thing I have found as well with when you're using a nebulizer uh, is that if you have the patient especially if they have a large tongue, if they stick their tongue out while they're breathing, you can actually ask them to do that. That helps those uh, droplets get back further and not all land on the tongue, um, which is an issue with a a traditional nebulizer. All right, so that's step two. What's step three?
2: So step three is to use this lidocaine um, ointment or paste, which is this very viscous um, 5% lidocaine we have here and most places do it comes in a tube uh it's not the the two percent gel that that will sometimes use for other purposes but this is almost the consistency of vaseline it tends to be white and using a tongue depressor to place that at the back of the tongue and then ultimately against the posterior pharynx and with time that melts and it coats the posterior oropharynx and it and it um, also, coats the piriform fossa, which is where the superior laryngeal nerve runs, and does a very nice job of further topicalizing the airway, and particularly is useful um, for decreasing stimulation when you actually do get to the vocal cords
0: themselves. That's fantastic. So, how do you do this? Do you, do you put it on the end of a tongue blade and then st- and then leave the tongue blade in the mouth, or do you kind of paint it on the, the tissue and then let it stay there?
2: So this can be done a few ways. I often will just put some on the, on the, the tongue depressor, usually on the, actually the top of it, with just a touch on the bottom and slowly work that back. Because you've done the aerosolizer first, it te- the patients tend to tolerate that part on the mm-hmm. posterior tongue quite well. Alternatively, many people here, and it works well, and if residents set it up this way, I'm fine with it, is to use the, um, a, 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 usually a 4x4 four four piece of gauze, kind mm-hmm. of like a, li- a lollipop, also on a tongue depressor in a similar way. And ultimately, that also melts and drips back and, and coats the airway really well. And I think, th- I think it's that
0: coating effect that makes it work so nice. Absolutely. All right. So, this is the uh, 4% ointment. Uh, I think the way you described it is perfect. It looks just like Vaseline, and that's what you're going to use for this step three. Uh, All right. And how long do you usually either hold it or have the patient hold it in there until you feel like it's melted appropriately?
2: In general, what I do is work it back, leave it for a minute or two, and then I turn it to one side so that it gets so that the part that's contacting the posterior pharynx is more set to say for the left and then the right or vice versa and give it about a minute on each side
0: great all right and it's, it's going to be hard to quantify this but can we try to quantify how much paste you're putting on the tongue blade
2: exactly one dollop. <laughs> a pinch so so it's about the size of a quarter is generally adequate and actually when you remove it there's still some there it's not all uh, gone. So I think the pa- the patient is getting less than what we're actually administering
0: initially. Perfect. All right. That's step three. What's step four?
2: So step four, and this is a part that I begin to examine the patient and see how they're doing in terms of tolerating secretions in their airway, particularly in the more frail patients or patients who are more ill. Um, but the fourth step is uh, can be is incredibly effective, and this is to take a uh, what's called a tonsil ball and use a Jackson forceps or a Krauss forceps, which is a curved uh, sort of clamp that allows you to hold that lidocaine-soaked tonsil ball. And I generally use 4% lidocaine, and really one tonsil ball is adequate for the entire thing. I think they come in a pack of five. And so it's a couple cc's of the 4% lidocaine. Most of it stays in the plagit in the, um, itself. And I place that into the piriform fossa, I usually do it from the right side to the left. So if I'm putting in the left side, it enters over, say, the right uh, canines. And uh, uh, and I leave it for at least one minute. One minute is, should be adequate. There's some studies that show you need it longer. But in my experience, one minute is adequate on each side.
0: So two minutes total. Great. So in case people don't know, what is a tonsil ball?
2: So a tonsil ball is just essentially one of these little... Um, it's basically gauze uh, filled into a little ball with a string that you can tie to the dev- apparatus so you don't lose it back there. But in general, the clamp works pretty well.
0: Okay, so you're, you've got a little gauze ball. You're clamping it. You're holding it with a McGill or, or other forcep. You're dipping it in. Now, not the the Vaseline-like, but this is liquid 4% lidocaine. Correct. And then you are holding it against first one and then the other piriform fossa for one minute each.
2: Correct, and that works very nicely. Just as a to, uh, to maybe explain it better, that what that it's essentially a cotton ball inside of a little um, uh, a mesh gauze, like um, exactly a mesh packet, so that you don't leave any of the extra little pieces
0: of the cotton ball behind. Great, perfect. All right. So that's step four, and that's going to take you just a couple minutes. So this is not a long process. And then step five you said was optional, but remind us what that is.
2: So step five is a transtracheal block, and essentially it's a way of, of placing lidocaine through the cricoid membrane into the trachea. And in general, when you do it, the patient has one cough and aerosolizes that lidocaine and really gets the... Um, inferior part of the larynx and essentially the recurrent laryngeal nerve distribution very well topically and they actually work very nicely. Um, the way that I do it, and uh, it's I think the way most people here at Hopkins do it, is to take our 3 cc syringe, which already has the 22 gauge nee- needle, mm-hmm. and draw up 2 to 4 percent lidocaine, in general, 1.5 to 2 cc's, and you want to leave some air in there mm-hmm. uh, with it. And then you basically clean off with uh, either chlorhexidine or alcohol the, um, the neck right above the cricoid membrane, which is very easy to feel and actually very. Very good practice to feel for if you ever had to do a cricothyroidotomy. Yep. And you place it right through the cricoid membrane, drawing back as you go. You'll get air bubbles. Mm-hmm. And you will uh, then inject quickly and remove it. The patient will cough when you do that. Are you and angling up toward the cords? I generally go straight in. Straight in. But I, I, bevel I probably up, I My bevel up. Mm-hmm. I'd stay away from the... I wouldn't angle. I'd try not to <laughs> have a needle hit the cord. So, right. But I think ultimately exactly where it's injected is relatively less uh, of an issue because as soon as it's injected, the patient generally will cough. Yep, uh, And that's what aerosolizes it and distributes it everywhere. It's dispersed.
0: Great. And so, of course, the other thing going along with coughing with a needle in your neck is that needle, if you're not careful, could pop out and stick in you, the provider, if you're not careful. So you want to be aware of that.
2: And you don't want to fracture it either. So... Uh, right. A fell swoop, but it really tends to work quite smoothly.
0: Absolutely. Now, the other way I've seen this done is some people will place a catheter over a needle and then take out the needle. So what's left is a catheter in the trachea, uh, the, an IV catheter, and then you can inject through that catheter. Um, but I agree with you. I think that going straight in with a needle is one less step and probably perfectly uh, easy way to do it. All right. So uh, – some people are going to be, so that's step 5 uh, i guess you said this is a, an optional step so when do you do it or not do it how do you decide whether to do to do the optional step
2: so part of it is whether you can feel the patient's uh, cracod membrane or not or risk doing a, other damage so as, as with everything we do it's always a risk benefit analysis mm-hmm. but the other issue is what benefit is the patient going to have a patient you're doing it for purely because they have say uh, potential difficult airway, and you're doing the awake bronchoscopic intubation for that reason. If they cough, it doesn't increase their intracranial pressure in a worrisome way. It doesn't drop, say, their preload in a worrisome manner. So the risk of a cough is is very low, mm-hmm. um, and so those are patients in whom I think it's a little less important. And I think if you if if you're utilizing which uh, sedation, particularly with an opioid, you might blunt that reflex to some degree. Also, it becomes less necessary. In the patient who, say, had really significant uh, elevated intracranial pressure, you might be concerned about them coughing more with that than they would with the transtracheal block. They will likely cough with the transtracheal block as well, so there's no completely free lunch. But if the risk-benefit ratio was uh, towards having them have absolutely no cough or the closest to no cough as possible, then I would recommend doing the block.
0: Okay, great. Now, some people are going to have heard of or be asking, do you also spray as you go? So if you're going in there with your fiber optic bronchoscope, uh, do you want to have lidocaine ready to spray as you go? So I think it's very reasonable to have it ready as long as
2: you're still thinking about your total dose and everything and adjusting to some degree. Uh, that said, at least the literature suggests that you need – once you spray, you need to wait a certain amount of time, and that's more a minute or more, which is very difficult for us to do right. when you see the prize and to sit there and hold steady and um, – and, and if it's an awake patient, it may be more uh, difficult for them as well. So I think it's a very useful technique. I think often, uh, and it's useful to supplement as well, but it does require patience. I think um, some of the really experienced pulmonary critical care physicians who do bronchoscopy regularly will frequently use this technique.
0: But the ones who are sort of masters are very patient. Right. Right. Great point. Okay. And if you do your first five steps or your five steps really well, uh, I would imagine it's probably rare that you even need to uh, spray any additional as you go. Now, what uh, some people are going to be wondering is you got five steps. It sounds like a lot of lidocaine going in. You've mentioned a couple times being cognizant of your total dose. What should people keep in mind in terms of lidocaine toxicity?
2: Well, for most average size patients, I tend to think about 500 as my total dose and 5 milligrams per kilogram, more or less. But in this situation, in t- what, as I mentioned, what you count as your total dose, I wouldn't necessarily count all of the 5 percent uh, ointment right. as the total dose. If you have 10, if you have 400 milligrams of uh, of total lidocaine in your aerosol, the patient, and frequently I do this, and they, if I put 10 cc's in, they still have 5 cc's is still in the vial, and the rest is on their lips or in the, uh, on the bed. Right. Or they've swallowed some, and there should be some first pass effect or certainly delayed uh, absorption. So there are case reports of toxicity, uh, including seizures in from airway topicalization but they're quite rare and there's also large series with no complications with similar techniques to these
0: great so you want to keep it in mind you want to be cognizant of what you're using but you should also be aware that not everything it's not like giving iv lidocaine not everything that you give or put in your vial or put on your tongue blade is getting into the patient system okay so those are our five, those are your five steps, nearly needless, because if you take the five step, you're using the fifth step, you're using a needle for the transtracheal approach. We talked about toxicity. Let's say that someone uh, needs to have a nasal awake fiber optic intubation, either due to the surgery they're having or due to the, the fact that their anatomy isn't conducive to an oral approach. What additional steps do you do, if any, for a nasal approach?
2: So for the nasal approach, I think using the Devilbus atomizer can be a nice adjunct, and, and before you're placing anything in the in the nares, you're already getting some topicalization. So I think that's a nice comfort for the patient. If you don't have that device, other devices there's nasal aerosol devices that can be very very useful. Um, they're frequently used in pediatrics, and then modifying some of our other devices like our LMA Magic, I will sometimes utilize that and just occlude the edge of it by the nares with a piece of gauze. So since we don't have the regular traditional um nasal atomizers on the adult uh side up here. Great. Um other things people will do and that are very commonly done is to uh use a lidocaine soaked um uh q tip essentially or and um and then you can get your ethmoid and uh, sphenopalatine um that way. Okay. And so, and you're soak can 4%, 4% you soak that in four percent. Same Four percent is what I would use for that. Great. And then also, we sometimes will do the dilate up the Naries, which is sort of mixed in terms of the literature. Using our two percent, that's that two percent lidocaine uh, gel, right. essentially.
0: And that gel is the same gel many of you out there are using when you put in OG or NG tube in. It comes in usually a little red and white small tube, uh, and that is used for a variety of things, as you mentioned. Do you use uh, Laban anything for uh, basal constriction of the nares?
2: So I do, despite the fact that most of the literature that looks at this relatively rigorously suggests there's not, in most studies, not benefit in terms of preventing epistaxis. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, I still do it. I think there's there's no evidence that it causes harm per se, and if it does prevent some epistaxis, I'd rather stay ahead of the game. And that's Afrin usually afrin or will often the afrin for us is available in our central pixels but not necessarily in the room whereas we have phenylephrine in the room yep so i'll frequently use phenylephrine mixed with the lidocaine uh uh gel and how do you mix that up i usually put a vial in with two tubes of the
0: lidocaine okay so a vial of phenylephrine being 10
2: uh it's 10 milligrams
0: Yeah. 10 milligrams of of phenylephrine mixed with two. So you squeeze out two of the little 2% lidocaine jellies. Exactly. Mix it all up in a little cup. And then you use that on your Q-tips. Generally, I place that with a uh, a nasal airway. With a nasal airway into the nare. Okay. Any concerns, especially maybe cardiac patients, uh, you're, you're worried about hypertension. Do you ever see hypertension with that phenylephrine? So I think you could, but I haven't seen it Okay. Frequently, with the amount that they actually get
2: for my patients. I would be more concerned using, say, cocaine in that situation. And there's really most of the studies that look at this show no benefit of cocaine over oxymetallazone. Which is that? And potentially more cardiotoxic effects, particularly in our
0: older, frail patients. Great. Okay. So that would be the nasal approach. Now, are there other patients, certain patient populations that you would modify your approach for? So patients who have significant previous airway surgery or radiation,
2: in whom you're or or with really severe sleep apnea, in whom you think that an, an anesthetizing the airway could possibly cause enough decreased motor tone that you could in in uh, lose the airway, and there are reports of this in the litera- literature. Exactly where it falls between it being a totally a tone-related issue or a loss of, 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 of motor tone versus things like laryngospasm isn't necessarily clear from essentially the case reports that are out there. Yep. But uh, certainly you will see patients, as you're doing each of these steps, have more of a hoarse voice, more of a muffled voice, or have more trouble handling the secretions that you're giving them. And that's one reason, actually, an important thing to add is that, and, and why I mentioned that you can do start these steps, but go through and reassess as you're going through it. Because there may be patients that you don't need to get to step particularly four four and five. Right. Most patients will benefit from that step three.
0: Now, Would it be accurate to say that in the extreme situation, like you mentioned, where maybe you have a patient who's so tenuous that you're concerned that even just topicalizing their airway might cause you to lose the airway, is that a patient who you say they have to have an awake trach? There's just not an option for an awake intubation here.
2: I think to there. it depends on what the – if the disease process is such that I think there's difficult access from above, that may be true. But I think most patients with uh, – there may be patients in that, that realm. I think that would be really the, a very small minority. And in right. general, you could do a small amount of airway topicalization, even if it was just with the aerosolized lidocaine alone, and then perhaps uh, – using some sedatives to your advantage, particularly a low-dose remifentanil might blunt the airway reflexes enough to allow them to tolerate it pretty comfortably as well. Okay. And now that we have... Uh, and also some of our other adjunctive medications like Presidex can be very useful in that sort of situation. So if the patient wasn't going to need a trach long-term uh, and I didn't think they had an anatomic reason why there was we couldn't place the airway from above, mm-hmm. I think it would be very rare that I would go that way just because I didn't think they'd
0: tolerate the inhaled uh, the, um, the topical anesthesia. Great. Okay. Now, We often think of, in fact, my last episode was kind of an overall approach to airway management, and one thing I mentioned is that the conservative approach, the oral board's answer, if you're unsure if you can mask, ventilate, and or intubate, is to do an awake intubation. But we want to be careful about thinking of this as risk-free, right? There are potential downsides, potential adverse effects to an uh, awake intubation. We've mentioned the potential for local anesthetic toxicity, we mentioned the rare potential for loss of airway patency during the procedure. Are there other things you think of as potential uh, adverse effects or adverse events that can happen during an awake intubation? One that people might mention would be aspiration. What do you think about that as a as a problem?
2: So certainly, it's possible to have aspiration, but in many many series looking at uh, at uh bronchoscopic intubation there's uh, few if any episodes of aspiration. So clearly something about being awake even if you have anesthetized airway has some benefit in terms mm-hmm. of uh aspiration. So the uh the likelihood of passive regurgitation causing an issue is significantly
0: decreased overall. That would I say it's zero risk? No, I wouldn't say it's zero risk. Okay, great. Now one thing we should have touched on when we were talking about lidocaine toxicity you have the airway in, and now you're going to induce. You are most people out there for induction are using lidocaine and propofol. Would you still give the IV lidocaine?
2: So depending on the dose the patient received and how large they are, if it's a little bit different. If it's a 250 pound guy versus a you know or you know 120 kilo guy versus a 50 kilo uh, guy or right. Or or little old lady, um, so there, in some patients I may not give the lidocaine. I think the, ultimately the lidocaine is a comfort issue. Many many patients, especially if you give the li- the propofol relatively slowly, don't have any symptoms with it.
0: Absolutely okay. So we're going to be cognizant of it and think about it before reflexively giving it, especially if you've used a fair amount, and especially if it's a, a fair amount of topicalization with lidocaine, and especially if it's a smaller patient. Now. What about positioning? How do you position your patient when you're going through these steps? So I think that positioning and actually psychologically preparing the
2: patient is very important for successful and smooth uh, awake bronchoscopic intubations. So I think having a very um, straightforward discussion with the patient about what the process is going to be. And then I personally feel that it's uh, much more pleasant for the patient to do this with them in the sitting position. And that is nice for them because really we're able to look each other in the eyes Anything I, while I might be wearing a mask, anything I say they can hear, they can see my eyes, we can communicate directly. If they're laying flat, then your elbows are kind of in their face, you're right on top of them. your badge is, is falling in their face it's, it's a, I think in general a much less they get a much less of a sense of control and it's sort of a strange position to be in. Plus the other really important issue is that respiratory mechanics are better overall when you're in the sitting position. And mm-hmm. so the functional residual capacity is greater. The sort of gravity helps you in terms of navigating the oropharynx when the patient's in the in a sitting position compared to when they're laying flat. And so for those reasons, I think it's very useful. I tend, into, if, if, unless there's some reason the patient can't be in that position, to do these in the sitting position facing the patient. Okay. I think this is one reason why practicing... Um, optic or bronchoscopic intubation on mannequins is very useful because for anesthesiologists, when we do this approach facing the patient, suddenly everything is backwards that we see on our screen right. or through the lens. Right. Um, and so that can certainly be a source of confusion, particularly when people have done a lot of a sleep um, bronchoscopic intubations from the head of the bed. So I think it's very useful
0: to practice this, uh, more than one way. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Now you mentioned before, but let's just be clear. uh, Your five steps don't have to all be done. Obviously the fifth you said was optional, but as you mentioned, there may be times where uh, you do the first two or three and that's sufficient. And uh, do you test? Are you going to stick something back there? And, and is there something that's going to tell you I'm fine? I can stop at three. Or how would you decide whether to omit a step?
2: So I think – so the first thing is just continually assessing the patient to determine whether they – as I said, if they start to have a really hoarse voice, if they're having trouble handling the, uh, the lidocaine, essentially, or the liquids involved with the topicalization, that's a sign that they're getting to the point where you may not want to do the next step for mm-hmm. those issues. Um, but also, in, when you're using the lidocaine ointment, you're, you're sort of testing Yep. Because you're using the tongue depressor to place it, at least the posterior or pharynx. You're not necessarily testing at the level of vocal cords per se, but you are getting some sense of, of how anesthetized you are. And certainly when you place the um, Jackson forceps with the lidocaine-soaked tonsil balls, you're also assessing really near the area you're going to be um, working
0: Right. Fantastic. All right. I love this approach. Five steps, nearly needless. A lot of really great stuff here. Is there anything that you think we need to mention that we haven't covered?
2: You know, the one thing is the anti-C is important, not just because of your view but by drying up the mucous membranes, you really help the local anesthetic to adhere to the surface of the membrane and then to be absorbed and to have its effect. And so that's – I have seen cases where they've – even if they've given some antisialgia, it either wasn't adequate or the patient, for some reason, had significant amount of hypersalivation. And the local um, anesthetic just never does its job, and I've seen people really struggle in that situation. So I think the anti is, while it may not be 100% necessary in every case, in, in many it is very useful. And that's why I put it as the first step. Plus it takes a certain amount of time for it to set in.
0: Absolutely. Some people I know will actually, in addition to the anti will go in there with some dry gauze and actually sop up any, any liquid that's still in there to really try to get that mouth as dry as possible.
2: I haven't done that, but that seems
0: reasonable in some situations for sure. Great. Now I meant to ask you also, we use lidocaine. I've never used anything but lidocaine, but can people use or are people out there using anything else besides lidocaine to do this topicalization?
2: So topical tetracaine is also used and has been commonly used. I just uh, we tend to use lidocaine here, so that's what I and we have it so easily available that we tend to use lidocaine here, but there are d- certainly other topical anesthetics that will work.
0: Great. People may have board questions about benzocaine and the concern there, at least the board question concern, is that it can cause methemoglobinemia.
2: And there's actually been a couple few case reports with lidocaine causing methemoglobinemia as well, but it's incredibly rare.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Great. All right. Well, this is fantastic. Laban, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we'll have to have you back to do another show soon.
2: All right, let's just go over the five steps Absolutely. Uh, to uh, airway topicalization. Include step one, which is the anti Step two is aerosolized lidocaine. Step three is lidocaine ointment. Um, and step four is a lidocaine soaked soak pledges using a, a Jackson forceps. And step five is the transtracheal block.
0: Love it. All right, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Remember, you can go to the website at that's ACRAC.com, that's dot com, where you can download all the episodes as well as leave comments. Let us know, is this how you do topicalization for awake intubation? Do you have another method? What tools do you use? We can all learn from your comments there. Of course, you can also email me directly at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you go to the website, you can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner so that you can receive notifications when a new episode comes out and any other interesting information that I send around. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Laban Lester, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.